chapter 40. Just a couple verses of, of chapter 41. And I'll be reading verses 1 through 11 of chapter 40. And then verses 27 through 31. So Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Hear God's true and eternal word. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness... Prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall be made straight, and the rough places plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. The voice said, Cry, and he said, What shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all the goodliness thereof is as the flower of the field. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of the Lord bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, but the word of our God shall stand forever. O Zion that bringeth good tidings... Get thee up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, that bringest good tidings. Lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up, be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And then what follows is many verses that declare the incomparable nature of God. There is no God upon this earth that can even be compared to Jehovah, the true living God. And we'll read some verses during the sermon from that portion. And then we go to verse 27 of chapter 40. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, My way is hid from the Lord, and my judgment is passed over from my God. Hast thou not known, hast thou not heard, that the everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary, There is no searching of his understanding. He giveth power to the faint, and to them that have no might he increaseth strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. But they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint." And in chapter 41, we'll read verse 10 and then 13, two verses. 41, 10, 
Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee. Yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And verse 13. For I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand, saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Amen. May God bless. We, we had a blessed um, experience this past week with VBS here in our congregation. Such a blessing to see so many children and, and all the, the hard work that goes into it. We are thankful to the Lord for all the volunteers, all the instructors. We, we had a week of, of remembering God's mighty hand to deliver His people from the bondage of, of Egypt, having used Moses as a deliverer. And, and it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ, who is our great glorious deliverer who delivers us from greater bondage still, the bondage of sin. And we, we come to Isaiah chapter 40. I invite you to open God's word to chapter 40 of Isaiah. And there, there are two reasons we, we are looking at Isaiah this morning. One, one is, um, this, this is a passage that has um, in a prophetic way, words that would have been echoed forth by John the Baptism in the John the Baptist in the in the baptism that that he effected before the the presentation of the Lord Jesus Christ, and also because this is where we are in our study of Isaiah, as we we mainly keep to Isaiah in our um, monthly prayer service. Every now and then, you may have been here when we have gone to a passage of Isaiah because we, we, we have passages that just seem to be needful to be considered by, by the whole congregation, um, if possible. And chapter 40 begins a whole new section in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah can be divided very simply into two portions. Chapters 1 through 39 that we have been considering, and you, you may have been here when we looked at, at the last few chapters where King Hezekiah comes as, as the example of a king who's doing what Isaiah is bringing as a message from the Lord to, to not trust in kings and in nations, but to trust in the king of kings. And, and he comes as this example at the very end of this whole first portion. And then the next portion begins in chapter 40. And in our, in our two points today, we, we will be, in a sense, looking at a summary of the portion that's gone before in, in the word warfare that is in our first point. And then we'll look at the, com, the, the comfort that is being promised and proclaimed in our second point. So our first point is when your warfare is accomplished. And secondly, when comfort is proclaimed. And so in our first point, as we consider when our warfare is accomplished, the, the, the question is, what, what is meant by warfare? This is not meaning, in essence, where, where two nations go to battle against each other as if that were the warfare. The, the word warfare here is put to, 
to those who are reading this book, and especially at the time in terms of history, the Jewish people, this warfare would be connected to a very specific time that they had, would have been under. Not, not when Isaiah wrote this, it was still going to happen. The people of God, because of their disobedience, would end up being in exile. They would be taken captive into Babylon and be there for 70 years. And it would be after that time was over, this comfort would be proclaimed. And so that time is being referred to as a time of warfare. And then we'll explain in more detail why even the word warfare is being used. But it was a time of judgment for God's people. God was disciplining them. And so, in a sense, this warfare is a, is a summary of everything that's been happening these first 39 chapters. Isaiah starts, and it brings this individual problem. And towards the end, we realize this individual problem is much greater than individual. It is global. What I mean by individual is if you go to Isaiah chapter 1, and you'll see that as soon as the book starts, he tackles the problem. In, in verse 4, it says, Ah, sinful nation. This is verse 4 of chapter 1. A people laden with iniquity, a seed of evildoers, children that are corruptors. They have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel into anger. They are gone away backward. Why should ye be stricken any more? Ye will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even unto the head, there is no soundness in it. But wounds and bruises and putrefying sores, they have not been closed, neither bound up, neither mollified with ointment. And that's the country of Israel, the people of Judah. They're typified as a person who's full of sin. But that sin doesn't stay with them. As you read the book, and as we've seen some of these chapters, we realize that God breathes judgment to all the neighboring nations. And then the last element is even to the whole entire world. And then when he singles out Judah and Israel, remember he, he has this one refrain, Israel, Judah, what you need to learn to do is don't go for salvation in man and people and specifically their, their kings. Come to me, I'm the king of kings, God is saying. Because what was happening in that days is, is exactly precisely what happens in our days. There's, there's a nation, it is kind of weak, so it, so it associates with another nation to kind of help it because a more powerful nation is here threatening it. And it just seems common sense that we would then have allegiances among us. But see, while nations are doing this, they're, they're looking at the glory and the power of this king and that and trying to find who can be my savior. And God is saying to Israel and to Judah, don't do that. They cannot save you at the end. I am your Savior. And that's where the text went to those last few chapters that we saw Hezekiah. Remember, we, we had one sermon here, I believe it was one, where, where Hezekiah is being um, surrounded by Rebshekah, who was a representative of Sennacherib, the king of Assyria. That was the world power of the day. And they are thinking, little Judah, that will be the easiest thing. Let us go there and take over. And Hezekiah by now, he, he had Isaiah as his pastor prophet. And he had been reading these sermons very likely. Because Hezekiah by then had learned the lesson. 
Now, I will not go to Egypt's king. I will not go to Babylon's king right now. I'm going to Jehovah. And remember, there are those two beautiful chapters where first it's Rabshakeh. He's there breathing all those threats. The people are scared. Hezekiah goes to the temple. He falls flat on his face. He calls Isaiah. Say, Isaiah, pray. Intercede for us. So he's doing what is being taught in Isaiah. He's going to God and not to man. And what happens? Rebshekah hears a rumor that he has to go. He takes the whole army away back to Assyria to fight another war. But then Sennacherib sends letters and says to Hezekiah, Don't think that we finished. We're, we're sending emissaries. We're going to come and embark again onto this war. And what does Hezekiah do that time? He receives this letter. He just place, places it before the Lord. And the second time, he goes to God and not to man. And he calls Isaiah and says, Isaiah, pray for us. We need God to help. Earth, earthly speaking, it was, it was mindless to think that a little tiny nation like Judah had a chance against Assyria. Assyria had dominated everywhere. Even Egypt was paying tribute to them. But God sent a blast. And that's when it was an angel of the Lord who came and thousands of the soldiers of Assyria died. Sennacherib went back in shame, and before too long he died when he was in the temple of his God because two of his rebellious sons murdered him. And so God is showing in this letter, See, don't go to man. Come to me. But then the last few chapters, just after these two chapters that tell this story that I just summarized, comes a story, comes a narrative where, where Hezekiah is sick and Isaiah comes and tells him, Hezekiah, put your house in order. You're going to die. And he turns and pleads with the Lord, don't take my life just yet. And then Isaiah comes and says, God spoke to me and said he heard your prayer. You're going to be given 15 more years. And, and then we look at this and we say, what, what is God teaching us here? And some commentators bring this, which I really believe is, is part of what's happening. Um, think of Israel, uh, Judah. They, they see that their king was used of God. And yes, the prophet. And, and, and here we have a king that is good. Can, can we trust a good king? And maybe in some minds they thought, could he be the Messiah, the anointed one? And God's word is saying with this, no, he's not the Messiah. He was going to die. But then he prayed and God answered again. There could still be some people thinking Hezekiah is our Messiah. And so the very next chapter, if you read it later, chapter 39. We just had it this last Wednesday in our prayer meeting, prayer service. Hezekiah receives visitors from Babylon. And Babylon is that nation that is trying to find allegiances against Assyria. And it sees that Judah is resisting Assyria. Let's, so, so they come visit Hezekiah after his sickness to, to, to celebrate that he is made better. And while they're there, Hezekiah shows the glories of his treasures and the treasures of the army. So the military treasures, probably the religious treasures and his personal treasures. And, and we do read... In Chronicles, in Second Chronicles 32.24, if you just read that at face value, you could try to be very generous to Hezekiah and say, well, he's just being diplomatic. But no, in Second Chronicles 32.24, it says that his heart was lifted up. 
And then it says, Therefore was wrath upon him and upon Jude and Jerusalem, notwithstanding Hezekiah humbled himself for the pride of his heart. That's Second Chronicles thirty two twenty six. So so he was proud. He he was starting to think eh, maybe I should have something of the allegiance of the kings of Babylon. It will help me against Assyria. And so it, it ends that whole portion. And and this is the message that we have. This is in essence what God is saying. Don't trust powerful kings. Often they're bad, but they may be powerful. There's a temptation to trust them. God is saying, don't. Well, what if they're good? What if they're powerful and good? They pray and God answers. They're pious and they're righteous. And God's word is saying, even the good ones, even the good kings, if they're only earthly, they are no saviors to you. And then comes chapter 40. And so you see, this is what God's Word is saying. All of these chapters, God has been declaring, this world has one problem. It is really just one problem. Even though our problems may be varied regarding finances, regarding sickness, regarding political issues, regarding job situations, relationships. Yes, it has a diversity of appearances, but it's really one problem at the base, and it is the problem of sin. This is what this warfare is all about. It started with that chapter where we saw, where we, I just read to you. And then remember, there was one sermon that I brought here that was chapter after chapter after chapter about all the judgment that will come to all the nations. Why? Because of sin. And so the first 39 chapters is saying, this is the issue. It is sin. We have tried in history to solve the problems. Let us make allegiances with these kings, with those kings. Maybe in finances, in politics, we will solve the problem. But that will never solve the problem. We need a Savior. We need God. And this is where chapter 40 comes in. Before we go to chapter 40, and we go, before we go to, to the comfort, one more word about the warfare. When your warfare is accomplished, because that's how chapter 40 starts. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God, speaking comfortably to Jerusalem, and crying to her that her warfare is accomplished. And so the warfare is like a, a word for all the judgment that would befall God's people and more immediately that time in captivity. Now, notice what would have happened with that time in captivity, what that captivity would make people feel. They would think two things. The temptations for God's people would be at least two things. Does God care? And is God powerful? Could it be that we're suffering still? Boy, boys and girls, put yourself in the, in the lives of the boys and girls in those days. If, if you went into exile when you were six years old, you would be now 60 um, years old. And you're still there. Because it, it took 70 years in captivity. So imagine you're 70 years old now in Babylon and you're thinking, I was born in Judah. I remember my dad telling me about prophet Isaiah and, and King Hezekiah. And there were those promises that we would go back. But, but I'm, seven, I'm 60 years old in captivity. Has God forgotten? 
Or maybe is it that he's not powerful? Does he love me? Does he have force? Could it be that the taunts of these nations is true? They have their gods and multiplicity of gods. We just have one. And could it be that having one is not powerful enough? And so year after year of captivity, God knew that the people there would have these temptations. And beloved, take this exactly to your heart today. This applies to you today. Isn't it true? There is suffering. There is affliction. The temptation is, does God care? Is He powerful? Do I have this because God can't take care of it? Or do I have it because He doesn't care? And God is, in chapter 40, saying no to to both of those. Because He does love, He does care, He is a God of comfort, He is a God of mercy, and He is powerful. It's not that the affliction is happening because He doesn't have power. It is because it's a warfare that God is allowing because they need it. And then the sense of the warfare is this. Think, Think of our soldiers and our loved ones who would be in a warfare... And look what God is saying. Their warfare is accomplished. It is God saying, you are redeployed. No, not redeployed. Right, You are non-deployed. You get to go back home. And it's as if God is saying, my people have been righteous soldiers. You've been waging the battle. The war is over. You can come back home. And so the picture here is God saying, the the afflictions that I needed to send to you are enough. It's not that you have paid for your sins. That never happens. But it's saying, the discipline that I needed to give you is enough. The the warfare is accomplished. And so that's that's our first point. Let us go to our second point. When comfort is proclaimed. And it's in this point that we will see the answer to those questions. That God does care and that He is powerful. And now, you know how very often when we're in the Old Testament, there is a message, not only in the words, there is a message in the structures of the chapters that we are in. And this is a chapter that does that. So if you are taking notes, it would help you to know that verses 1 through 11 have somewhat of a theme, and the theme is regarding the reality that, yes, God does love and does care. And verses 27 through 31, which is the end of the chapter, it's also the theme that, yes, God does love and He does care. And if we were to give slightly different titles to each one, is the first one would be, He will come to save. He cares. He will come to save. And and then the last little portion, so chapters, verse 27 to 31, is showing that God does love and He does care because He will give you strength. So a summary word is salvation in the first portion, strength in the last portion. But you notice, while while I'm doing this, we, we, we are left with a middle portion. And this is what's often done in in the Hebrew, especially in the Hebrew Scriptures. There's a middle portion, not so much to say that's the most important thing, but it's really calling your attention to that. And and the whole becomes a message. The whole middle is God being compared, as it were, as as if it were possible, because it isn't. But if people would insist, yes, go ahead and compare with the gods of the peoples, with the powers of the nations. 
And God is incomparable. He is majestic. He is mighty. So the middle portion is showing that God is the ruler of the universe. So, so let's look at this first portion that He will come to save. This, this is answering the question, yes, He does love us. He will come to save us. And, and it's all by two verses at a time. The first two verses we, we could put under this theme of, of comfort, of course. The theme of comfort. Beloved, if you've been, and, and, and go home, do this. Read chapters 1 through 40, through 39, and you will see how it comes as a breath of fresh air that after so many words of judgment, so many words of woe, even, even as, as a preacher, we, we sense the, 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 the difficulty of having to preach one chapter after another of judgment. But then you get to verse four, verse 1 of chapter 40, and we have the word comfort. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. And here you start seeing everything has changed. Um, when God was decrying the people, He called it this people. And now He is comforting and He calls them my people. And he doesn't just say comfort once, he doesn't say comfort twice. And in verse 2 he says, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her. And, and what is the whole message? The warfare is accomplished. Her iniquity is pardoned. God is saying, I am ready to bestow my mercy. I am ready to show love. I am ready to come in sympathy and care. Not this people anymore, but my people. And so the theme of comfort. And then secondly, looking at verses 3 and 5, we, we, we have this question. How will there be comfort? How is this comfort possible? Well, look at verse 3. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And beloved, this is, this is a glorious part of this message. God is not saying, I will send a Moses, or I will send a Jeremiah, or I will send a Hezekiah, or a David, as good as all these men were. The Lord is saying, I am coming. Prepare the way of Jehovah. Prepare the way of the Lord. That's how comfort will come. It'll be my might by my coming. He he will return to that, but but still so so the theme of comfort, how there will be comfort. And then when you get to verse six and verse eight, all the way to verse eight, um we we will have we, we have this little theme. How can there never be comfort? What is, what is the clear understanding by now that must be by those who have been reading Jeremiah, or, um, Isaiah, or have been living in those days, and you saw those kingdoms, and you saw certain kings of Judah who would trust man and not God, and, and then there would be their fall, there would be devastation. Then you have Hezekiah as an example, trusting the Lord. What is it that we have learned by now? We have learned the message that begins in verse 6. What is man? No matter how mighty a king may be, what is that king? Look at verse 6. The voice that cry, that said, cry. And he said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass. Humans are like grass. Look at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fadeth. It's interesting that when you say grass and when you say flower, there's an element of beauty 
There's an element even of efficacy. There's an element of productivity. Grass is good. It feeds the cows and the sheep. And then we have wool and milk and meat. It is good, but it doesn't last. You have a beautiful flower one day. The next, it has fainted. There's a beauty, but then there's an end. And you see what God is saying. Have you learned the message? Don't trust people. Don't trust these false gods. They're they're just like big people. Made big by the mythology of the past. These kings, these glorious kings, no matter how great their crowns and how much gold they have, they're but grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. So you see, the theme of comfort, how comfort will come, how comfort will not come, that's verses 6 through 8. And then we have the last little portion here in verses 9 through 11, the proclamation of comfort. Now look how what's precious. I'm looking right here now, verses 9 through 11. Not only is this explaining how comfort will come, but it's calling for people to be proclaimers of this comfort. Look at verse 9. O Zion, that bringest good tidings. Good tidings. See, it's a message. Get thee up into thy high mountains. O Jerusalem, that bringeth good tidings, lift up thy voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Verse 10, Behold, the Lord God will come with strong hand and with his arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. And so, It's again the theme of how will this comfort come? It will be by the Lord coming. But the the passage is here saying, who will be preachers of this? Who will be evangelists? Who will be proclaiming this reality that the Lord is coming? And this is, is where we come even to the reality of how this was fulfilled, first of all, in John the Baptist, where John was baptizing people. He was saying to them, this Messiah is about to come now. It it is so near the coming of the Lord that all of us need to be washed and bathed. It it was the message he was giving. Um, It's not a matter of preparing the road in the sense of making it beautiful for him. It is a matter of preparing the heart and making it beautiful for him. And that's where one of the elements of baptism has, has, has been presented in God's word. To be ready for the Lord. Baptism is communicating repentance, that that we need sins washed away, that we need to be cleansed. If you have sins upon you, you're not ready to look to the Lord. But it's not that you take your sins away by yourself. No, you go to the Lord. You say, Lord, forgive me. Cleanse me. I need this Messiah who came. And So, beloved... um, before we look at the, the next little section, you, you see what's happening. Um, there's this proclamation of comfort. And it says how the comfort will come. By God coming. He, he, refrained, he, he brings back the refrain, Stop looking for comfort for salvation in human flesh. It is as good as grass. It, it doesn't stay. It doesn't remain. 
Just one little meditation, beloved. Isn't it true? Think of, think of the opposite of, of our world. How, how man puts so much um, in themselves. Look at the message. We, we don't have to read the radio, hear the radio for a little bit or hear an article. And, and it's like the whole message is that we are sufficient in ourselves. That you are number one. That humanity must achieve its own salvation. That we will save the planet and we must do it. And, and it's this thought that we are saviors. There's one man, Roy Bennett, who said this, Believe in yourself. You are braver than you think, more talented than you know, and capable of more than you imagine. He continues, With hard work, perseverance, and self-belief. Think of what Isaiah said, We're grass. But Roy Bennett says, Self-belief, there is no limit to what you can achieve. And perhaps one of the climax of this cult of self was William Ernest Henley's poem, Invictus, where he says, I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. But search and you will not find William Henley alive. But Calvin brings another sense, it's another emphasis. It's not only our presence and our, and our stature that goes away. We who are grass, it's not just our bodies. It is, think of the skill and the mind and the thoughts. And, and think of everything that you can do with your hands. But beloved, when you die, all of that doing also goes you may leave some philosophy written down, but where is the mind that wrote down that philosophical thought? That mind is gone. That's what Isaiah is saying. And this is what God's Word is saying. Stop. Cease ye from man. He said it just a few chapters before. But beloved, isn't this a good reason to cease from us when, when there's nothing in us? I don't, I don't need to prove this, right? We get sick. and We need our mom. We need our wife. Big grown-ups get sick and we feel like little babies. And we're going to be our saviors. But God's not leaving us with this bad message. He's saying there is a savior. There is God. He is coming. And so, so he's proven he is willing. He'll go back to that at the end of the chapter. But before he goes, he, there's verses 12 through 26. I won't read it all. I won't have time, but please do read this portion at home. You'll notice this, this theme. It's not just God saying, I am God Almighty. He is calling you and me to, to a challenge, as it were, to compare Him with the other gods, to compare Him with other things. And I just put it, want to put a little structure. And, and there's a little structure in this little portion that's beautiful as well. Verses 12 through 14, it is presenting God as creator, who hath measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and meted out heaven with a span, and comprehended the dust of the earth. You see what I mean about comparing? Because God's not saying, I can do all these things. He's saying, who can do all these things? So he's saying, I can, but... Can you? Can Zeus? Can that emperor? Can that king? Can that prime minister? Can that nation all put together? Look at verse 13. Who hath directed the spirit of the Lord, or being his counselor, hath taught him? Etc. 
God as creator. And then verses 15 through 17, God as ruler, that he is the ruler of all. Verse 15, behold, the nations are as a drop of a bucket and are counted as the small dust of the balance. Behold, he taketh up the isles as a very little thing. And he's ruler over all of this. And then verse 18, verse 18 is a key verse there. It is a verse challenging us to compare. Look at 18. To whom then will ye liken God? Or what likeness will ye compare unto Him? And the answer, of course, is nothing. No one. And there's still two more verses, 19 and 20, where He shows the folly of idolatry, like a conclusion. And I'm leaning all through this because I want you to see the beauty of Scripture in the structure that God inspired. Verse 21 Uh, What we have, 21 and 22, is again God as creator. 23, 24, again God as ruler. And then verse 25 is like a parallel verse to 18 that I said that we're being invited to compare. Look at verse 25. To whom then will ye liken me? Or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. Now notice the difference. Verse 18, it's like the prophet asking you, to whom then will ye liken God? Verse 25, there's a degree deeper. It is God directly as if he puts the prophet to the side and he says, to whom then will ye liken me or shall I be equal, saith the Holy One. So, beloved, you see what's happening. God is creator. God is ruler. Compare. See if you find one who's greater than him. God is creator. God is ruler. And then God comes, as it were, face to face with you and say, Have you found anyone greater than me as creator and ruler? And then, beloved, go to verse 27. Remember, that's the last portion where we have it answered. Yes, God can be trusted because He does love us. He started with, yes, I love you. He's going to end with, yes, I love you. And in the middle, He's saying, yes, I'm all-powerful. You see the whole structure? And now look at verse 27. Look how He starts this question. Why sayest thou, O Jacob, and speakest, O Israel, my way is hid from the Lord? Now, beloved, imagine here a family there in in Mesopotamia, in Babylon, sitting in their home, remembering Israel and Judah. And it's now 65 years maybe in captivity. And the wife might be tempted to say, you know, Aaron, I don't think the Lord will ever send us back. There's no hope. We're still not an obedient people. And maybe Aaron remembered a copy of Isaiah and he said, Oh, my wife, you're, you're talking as if your way is hid from the Lord. Or if the husband would one day be coming back from the field and saying, I want the fields of Judah. Has God forgotten? Does he not see us? And the wife would say, Oh, Israel, my way is hid from the Lord. Is that your question, my husband? Because look what God said. Remember what God said after those words. After those words to make us stop doubting that He is a God 
who may have forgotten, who is not powerful. What did he say? And look at verse 28. God is saying, Hast thou not known? Hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, fainteth not, neither is weary. There is no searching of his understanding. He gives power to the faint, and to them that have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint, and weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. Here it's implied someone who's not trusting the Lord, someone who's just going to this world, the youth trusting his might, the, the, the human trusting his humanity. Verse 31. And beloved, I, I end with this. This verse says, What then shall you do? This is all good and well. I am being told in Scripture that God does love and God does care and God is powerful there's none as greater a ruler than him there is none as powerful as he is none as loving what shall I do verse 31 but they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength they shall mount up with wings as eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint And you'll remember in chapter 41, I read verse 10, that that threefold promise, I am thy God, I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee, yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. And did you pay attention to verse 13? The, The figure that is there, this God who said he will come, it says in verse 13, I, the Lord thy God, will hold thy right hand saying unto thee, Fear not, I will help thee. Parents with your children, as you raise your children, as we walk upon this earth, as we see the turmoil of the nations, even of our own nation, let us be resolved not to fear. Let us not trust man. Man is but grass. The nations are but a drop in the bucket. But our God, He is ruler of all. He is creator. And He does love. This God is showing Himself as one who gives His hand into yours. So holding one of your hands, He whispers as it were into your ear, I will help thee. And what are you called to do? How much money are you called to give to the causes of God or, or, or the obedience that you are commanded to be shackled to, as it were, or the devotion that it's necessary or else he'll never say that he will help you. He says, wait. That is the extent of your duty. Wait. There's no sweat in waiting. There's no labor in waiting. There's certainly no merit in waiting. There's no glory in waiting. You know what waiting is? It is, in essence, you looking to God and saying, I believe everything. And what is He wanting you to believe? That God who came was in the person of Jesus. And remember... Boys and girls, remember when Jesus was here, he said, I am the good shepherd. 
And look at the promise. It was, he shall feed his flock like a shepherd. He shall gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and shall gently lead those that are with young. And so if you were the shepherd and you see all the sheep, um, um, oftentimes there would be a shepherd at the beginning, there would be a shepherd at the back, and, and the sheep are all going, but who trails behind are the mamas with the babies. If the mamas are pregnant, they can kind of stay with the flock. The mamas who have little babies, they stay toward the end because the little lambs can't walk so fast. This is a picture of Jesus. You see what God's Word is giving. Um, this is... Basically, 700 years before Jesus was born. And when he comes to this world, in his ministry, you can in essence see him in this shepherding love. He's in the midst of that tumult of people going to Jairus' house because his daughter was about to die. But there's like a little lamb that trails behind and touches the hem of his robe. She was such an insignificant little lamb in the life of Israel. She could not dare show herself or speak to him because of the issue of blood that she had. She would be declared unclean and defiled and taken away from the crowds. She dared not even speak her needs. So she thought, I'll just touch the garment of Jesus. That was her faith. And remember, Jesus stopped. He said, virtue has gone from me. Someone has touched me. Peter rebuked Jesus because he said, all of us are touching you, and here we are in a crowd. And then that little lamb was there, and and she said, it was me, Jesus. Don't you see the picture of Jesus taking that, that little lamb and carrying as it were in her bosom And he said, your faith has made you whole. But there was another lamb, as it were, in that whole travail. It wasn't Jairus' daughter so much. She was dead by now. It's not like she was feeling a need. But that father, can you imagine that father thinking, Jesus, my daughter is dying. My daughter is dying. And you're going to stop to take care. Okay, this is a little lamb that needs you. And you can almost think if he was a man who truly read the Bible, he could see the shepherd stopping and trailing behind those who are slow and taking it in his bosom and feeding the little ones and there was even grace to him because when he receives the messengers no don't bother the master your daughter's dead you can imagine Jairus looking at Jesus like there's no grace for me but he was a little one too of the flock and you can almost see as it were Jesus taking this Jairus like a little lamb putting to his bosom and saying don't worry she's only sleeping he arrives at his home and he sees the mourners mourning that she died that everything battling against trust in Jesus Everything more probably in his mind trust in man maybe you should have gone to the doctors maybe you should have gone somewhere else but he went to Jesus and he was blessed Because Jesus entered with Peter, James, and John, looked at his daughter, and he said, Talitha kumi, little girl, rise. And she arose from her deathbed. And Jesus said, give her food. Can you imagine the joy of Jairus and his wife to see their recently dead daughter alive? All because they trusted the good shepherd. And the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. 
this little narrative with which I end, is not what saves the woman with blood or the daughter of Jairus. It is the fact that Jesus not only did all these wonderful things, but after he was arrested because he gave himself in, he was placed on the cross to die there for sinners. So, beloved, when we see this message, behold your God, the Lord will come with strong hand, with an arm shall he rule. He will feed the flock. See, in in the eyes of the people, that's why when they were seeing Jesus, they thought, well, that can't be the Savior because he doesn't look like he has a mighty hand. He doesn't look like he's going to rule after anything. He's there nailed to the cross. How can he save us from our sins? And that was God saying, that is how he can save you from your sins. Because if my son had not been there nailed and shed his blood and received my wrath because of sins, then every single individual would have to receive it for your own sins and the nation's sins. And there would be absolutely no hope to this world. Chapter 39 would be the last chapter. There would be no comfort. There would be no chapter 40. But beloved... Chapter 40 is is like the promise of the gospel and the only hope this world has. It was the promises that the Savior would come. But not only that He would come, and we won't, of course, in this sermon, but you know Isaiah 53. Go home and read that one too. That is the promise that the Savior would die because we would need a sacrifice for our sins. And that is how our sins are forgiven. May the Lord bless us as we glory in this message, as we are comforted by it, by believing in the Good Shepherd, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, how we thank Thee, Lord, that Thy Word does not end in Isaiah 39 where there is even promise of the captivity that all the treasures Hezekiah showed to Babylon would end up in Babylon, and that even his descendants um, would end up in Babylon. Lord, we thank Thee for chapter 40, verse 1. And we thank Thee for Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We thank Thee that Jesus came. We thank Thee, Lord that the valleys have been exalted, that the mountains have been made low, that there is no obstacle to come before Thee because Jesus is a Savior of sinners. Help us, Lord, to be a people who acknowledges that we are but grass. We do thank Thee, Lord, for the dignity Thou hast created us with, with, with the reality that we bear Thine image. But help us never, Lord, to worship ourselves as if we are anything better than creatures to glorify our great, glorious God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.